Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times, and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I got to know George through the early to mid-1980s when we traveled to perform at festivals in southern Canada. He was the go-to guitar accompanist for Métis fiddlers, such as Richard Lafferty and Angus Bolio, as well as the one-man rhythm section for the Métis Reelers, a group that performed traditional Métis dances. Back then, I recognized George as a very capable musician, with a solid groove and nailing all of the parts consistently for whoever he was backing up. I didn't truly appreciate the nuances and intricacies he brought to the stage until I started to work with him and his son Lee in the 1990s. Lee found his way to the fiddle, and under his father's tutelage, quickly became an award-winning fiddler. I suspect this is partly due to the fact that when he was younger, George himself was mentored by master Deninu Métis fiddler Angus Bolio. And as I have said before, Métis music was imprinted onto their DNA from the beginning. When I started to play bass with this father-son duo, I heard right away how much of the musical arrangement George carries in his guitar parts. I found myself having to dance in between the bass lines, rhythm grooves, and lead lines he was playing simultaneously. Believe me, those bass lines alone are pretty tricky. After not playing with them for a few years, they asked me to play with them at a local stage for a summer solstice event, with no rehearsal. I came off that stage feeling like George had just kicked my ass all the way down the block and back. There was no way I could keep track of all of the parts he was playing and how quickly the change-ups were happening. My appreciation and respect for the musicianship of this father-son duo deepened after that gig. I have not heard very many guitar players play in that style before, and when I asked him where he picked it up, he graciously mentioned one name, Peter Lafferty. Peter is an amazing guitar player from Fort Simpson, who is one of the first guitar players from up here to play in a finger-picking style rather than strumming a rhythm part. Peter's podcast will be coming up, 
but his full interview is available on the website now. George has always been so encouraging to me as a player, as much a friend as a fellow musician, and without really talking about it directly, recognizes my own mixed blood ancestry and encourages me to express and celebrate that on stage and in my music. I've learned a lot about Métis fiddle music and the Métis culture in this interview with George, recorded in January of 2004. Uh, let's see. I was in the hospital when I was about age 10. I was hospitalized for about a year and a half, and uh, I just started playing the guitar for something to do. I mean, in those days, we had no... Uh, well, we weren't allowed to go to, like, a movie theater, or there's no, no such thing as TV. Even a radio was a luxury, and, and there were a few people in the hospital that had guitars and just more or less just sang and played the guitar just for entertainment. So, I mean, I, I was more or less just, you know, handed the guitar and told to try it and a few basic chords, and, you know, that was where I, I was introduced to the guitar, and I really got to enjoy it. And when I did get out of the hospital, I... Uh, went over to visit my, my next-door neighbor, who was Angus Bolio. Now, Angus was a great influence on a lot of musicians in, in Resolution because he, like, he had several instruments. He had uh, probably the first amplifier in the town and uh, was very uh, influential to, to a lot of other musicians in town. And I was just lucky that he was my, my next-door neighbor, and he encouraged us, you know, and he spent a lot of time with anybody that showed interest in, in music, and I did spend a lot of time with Angus, and he was always very, very encouraging, and uh, it was almost like every day I'd be over there trying a few licks, and it was always, uh, like, people from out of town would come. Like I said, because there was no, no form of entertainment besides music and old-time dances, like seemed like any time there was an old-time dance, because I'd been playing with Angus quite a bit, he'd ask me to come over and we'd, we'd practice our tunes and whatever, and he'd show me the different chords, different licks on, on the guitar, and basically I just, just chummed along with Angus and some of the other guitar players in town, you know. Who were some of the other guitar players that were in town? Uh, there was people <clears throat> like uh, Cecil Lafty, and there was... Uh, Tony Buggins, and there was quite a few, quite a few people that played the guitar. I mean, it was nothing like what you hear nowadays. I mean, because of the different influences, and like tape players and CD players or whatever, everything was uh, more or less just passed on to each other, and everybody played by ear. Like nobody took any formal music lessons yeah. or anything. But basically, we got into this just, just for to make entertainment, you know, so, uh, pass the time. And it seemed like every weekend there was an old-time dance happening somewhere. It was actually exciting, you know, like I really enjoyed it. And and I made a point of being at every dance and, you know, spent most of my time just playing the guitar for whatever fiddlers. And that, that's that's how I got into So that music. was right from you were in the hospital at 10, 10 years old and then... You started playing with Angus, like right yeah, after that. Uh, yeah, so yeah. through your early teens. Early teens, yes. And then I went to Braina Hall in Fort Smith. I didn't play too much there, you know. 
but uh, it was more more like when I got home is, is when playing, stuff happened, you know. You were playing the traditional fiddle music, right? I mean, you were yeah, playing mostly, guitar. Yeah, mostly, yes. I played uh, like rhythm and a little bit of lead, you know. Didn't get really into playing with, with a, like a band, an organized band. The early years was playing rhythm or playing along with a fiddler, and that's, that's okay. what I enjoy mostly. Okay. After Smith, I went to school for my grade uh, 9 and 10 there, came back to Res, and then um, went to Keicho Hall for my grade 11 and 12, and that, that's where I got into playing with, with the rock and roll band. A lot of venture stuff, and a lot, a lot of instrumentals. Can I go back to even before you were in the hospital and guitar and stuff like that? Did you go to like the old time dances that were happening like before you even started playing guitar? Do you remember some of the fiddlers that were around before you even started to play? Not really. Like I can't even remember going to old time dances till I come out of the hospital. Okay. Like I, I didn't have that much interest in what was yeah. happening in the music field, man. Okay. But I, once I started playing the guitar, then I got more interested, and I always enjoyed uh, the fiddle, you know, mm -hmm. playing along with the fiddlers. And there were quite quite a few good good fiddlers come out of Resolution. Uh, Resol and it seemed like any time there was an old time dance, somebody would, uh, you know let me know there was one, and then I'll always be there. Mm -hmm. I was at every. Every old time dance that happened in Res. I mean, during the summer months, from the time school was out, like at the end of June till till the end of August, it seemed like every night or every second night there'd be an old time dance <laughs> happening somewhere. You know, it it was exciting. Like I really enjoyed that. I mean, there was you know not not much else to do. You know, like I don't even think there was a road punched into to Res at the time. Like so. Pretty isolated. Yeah, what years would we be talking about here? I come out of the hospital, I think, 1957. So from then on until I went to, yeah. to high school. And the road went in there in, what, 60 or 61? Was that when the road went in there, or was it later than uh, that? I'd say, yeah, early 60s. I think probably okay. 62 or so. 61, 62 is when they, they pushed the road through right, yeah. to uh, Pine Point and then on to Res from there. So. That's right, yeah. What kind of music were you listening to on the radio that was coming up from down south? A lot of ventures, ventures and string alongs. You know, the, a lot of instrumentals were very popular at the time, and it was so I, I got to learn most most of the the tunes. Like I, I could afford it. I'd go out and buy a record, you know, and yeah. and practice along with it. There was there was somebody selling records in in Res, or would you have to go to another uh, town? To the Bay, the, the Bay, Bay would be the only place I'd say. Yeah. And Angus there again supplied a lot of the, uh, like he had reel to reel, and I don't know where he got his material from, but he seemed to always have something happening in, in music, you know. Like we'd come to visit him, and he'd say, "Hey, you got to hear this," you know. <laughs> so he'd, some some yeah. new piece of music that way. Oh yeah. Your playing was mostly traditional fiddle music. Um, Up till the time I went to school, oh. and then then I started playing in a <coughs> rock and roll band. And so, out of Keicho Hall. Yeah, Keicho Hall, basically. Yeah. yeah. Who were you playing with at that time? Okay, uh, our lead singer was uh, Herb Bolio. He's from my hometown, so Matt Lafferty would be another one. He was our bass player and singer. 
Jim McPherson was actually our, our the first drummer we had when we started. This is back in '63, and then um, Hans Nenza. I don't know if you remember Hans. He was our, our drummer. So you guys would play in a Cato Hall, uh, or would you play for the school? Play, yeah, yeah, in, we played in town or every like every weekend we'd play for a dance, you know. And I don't even think we got paid for it. It was just we played because we enjoyed it. And then um, the Elks Hall would hire us almost like every, maybe once or twice a month, you know, to play for their dances, mostly teen dances. And then we played at the school for different events, like if there was a, a basketball tournament or ball tournament or whatever, out-of-towners would come in, and, and then a um, high school dance would be organized, and I think we were probably the only band in town at the time, so... Go. We were always uh, asked to play. I think five dollars a piece was what we got. Yeah, you know, that, playing, yeah. and that that was that was a lot of money in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you were playing again. So you're playing rock and roll, and you're playing the early instrumental. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. The, the adventurous yeah. tunes and. I think the Beatles were just coming on scene then. Uh, we did a few, the other stuff, but uh, mostly whatever was popular at the time. You know. From there, when you got out of school, where did the work or the music take you from there? Okay, after I left school, I, uh, like our, our band basically broke up, and I never got really back into playing with, with a regular group. Then I actually quit playing in 67, I think it was, 68. Then I accompanied different singers like uh, uh, Ted Mercury, and, uh, you know, like there was some... Uh, other different groups that needed a guitar player, uh, they'd phone me up and say, hey, we need need you to accompany us. We've got an accordion player here, or a piano player, or whatever. With old Henry Anheim yeah. and Betty Stevens, I even accompanied her. Uh, I'm sure you have too. Yeah. And then I basically set the guitar down around 1970 or so. Never touched it again till 1985, I think. Well, 15... 15 years, I never really played at all until uh, my son, Lee, uh, got interested in music. And he asked me if, if I'd teach him how to, how to play the guitar. And that's so I got back into it again. Yeah. And then playing since then? Who have you been playing for? You've been playing for uh, Lee? Basically, uh, just accompanying Lee. Like, we did uh, like a, a guitar duo. It was just him and I. Like, mm-hmm. And just helped him helped him along with playing the guitar, and he got comfortable with it. And then he switched over to the fiddle. So basically, that's where I'm at right now. Is I just accompany him on the fiddle, and that's what I really enjoy. It seems within the Métis people that way that the fiddle is sort of like a torch or a beacon or something <laughs> like that. You know, just the the songs and the tradition. That's something that I've admired. Do you see it in the same way? That's a good way to describe it. Like, it seems like that's all we had in the old days, and, and that's why I'm really attached to the fiddle, or the sound of it. Like, myself, I, I don't play the fiddle at all, but uh, I was involved in a, um, like a square dance group, the Métis Reelers. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we did this organized dancing, we traveled all over the country, you know, uh, and uh, I was with them from 85 till... 1990, 91, 
when I, I quit the group, while I was involved with this dance group, I always had Lee come along with me, you know. Like he tagged along and I don't know if you'd call it like immersion or whatever, you know, but just being around that fiddle sound, like I was always practicing the like the different steps, different dance uh, uh, formations or whatever, and he was always there and it was almost like he was immersed into the, uh, the fiddle music and that's why he got uh, playing, I think, you know. How, how big was the dance group? Can you tell me more about the Métis Reelers and some of the things that you did? We formed in 85, okay, and uh, like we had a, a group come in from Edmonton. They came in and showed us some of the dances that were forgotten, you know. Mm. They traveled to all the different communities and, and more or less regained or, or uh, some of the lost dance uh, patterns and that. Mm -hmm. So we found out like they had a lot of knowledge and some of these dances were forgotten. So we brought them up to uh, more or less to help us with our dance formations yeah, your, or whatever, your, your you know? Group, yeah. yeah. Some of the old traditional dances were <clears throat> that we weren't even aware of. They reintroduced it back to us, you know? Like after we learned, learned some of these dances, and we watched the videos and that, after we got probably good enough to do some performances, we were invited to um, St. John, New Brunswick, so we did that, and we, we traveled to uh, all the different communities along along the Mackenzie and around Great Slave Lake. And Expo was the big one, uh, Expo okay, in '86. Yeah. It seems it seems between the South Slave communities and Fort Smith and Fort Resolution, there's like a lot of different players and different singers. Like over the years that I know, and even up until today, there's still young players that are coming out of there today. Mm -hmm. And they're they're all really good. And they're all sort of different, and I sort of different in what way? Well, different, <laughs> different, and uh, how can I put it? Maybe it's the isolation thing. What you were talking about earlier about when you were growing up, there was no television, there was no road. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you just had electricity. I'm not sure about that either. But the smaller communities seem to nurture. And, and it almost seems like there was competition, you know. <clears throat> Like, there was lots of interaction between different people. I don't know if you'd call it competition, but there was always something happening. Like, that could be part of it, you know, why it's produced so many different uh, musicians. I had the guitar, and uh, next thing you know, my next door neighbor got a new guitar, and it seemed like everybody was getting, pulling them out of the woodwork, you know? Yeah. And we'd get together and um, just more or less exchange. And there was a lot of that happening, you know? Yeah. By saying competition, I don't know if it's the right term, but it seemed like more interaction. That's the difference between, like, small communities versus, like, a bigger place like Yellowknife. Like, we played for dances and never got paid. Didn't even think of it. Didn't even consider it. Like, we played because we enjoyed it, you know? And you take a break and somebody was right on that guitar next, you know? <laughs> It's like, you don't have to wrestle it away from him to yeah, get, get back get, on, you know? Get it back, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a, certainly not a monetary thing. It was more for enjoyment. Again, that's just the difference in talking with the players that come from the smaller communities. There's a whole different mindset that happens there. Yeah. 
When you were playing for these old-time dances, how long would they go on for? Oh, gosh. Some of the the dances, like, it depends on how many couples you had now. If, if you had a hall full, it would be, like, 20 couples. It seemed like uh, 45 minutes an hour for one dance. Oh, one dance. Oh, so it was tiring, as, especially, you know, you, you look at the poor fiddler. <laughs> yeah. Like, some of them were, were older, but they're the ones that really had the endurance, it seemed. Probably because they've had more years playing. Like there's there's one fellow, his name is uh, Sam Norn. Like he'd light up a cigarette, you know, and before the cigarette would be done, like, I mean, the, the dance just went on and on. He'd have to spit it spit out before it burnt his lips <laughs> <laughs> and see if he'd just carry on. And somebody would come along, stick another cigarette in his mouth, light it for him, and he'd continue on, you know. <laughs> it, was, wow. uh, it was fun, yeah. You would go for like, what, four hours? Six oh gosh, hours? like we'd start, uh, like there was no set time. It never was yeah. advertised. And um, the old Mogs and Telegraph, you know, yeah. people would say, hey, there's a dance happening at Jesse's, you know. And so everybody would zip over there, throw all the furniture out. Not throw it out, but <laughs> set it outside, clear the whole area. The fiddler would get in there and, oh yeah. Like, it went on from, say, 6 at night, maybe after supper, till 6 in the morning. Yeah. So you're just taking shifts on guitar and taking oh, shifts yeah. on the fiddle? Yeah, and yeah exactly. Everybody sort of chipped in that way. Like, it was a non-stop thing. Like, sometimes uh, you had to actually pay the fiddler. I mean, it wasn't money. Sometimes you'd bring him a little jug of brew or yeah. whatever, you know. Then when he got thirsty, he'd hang up the fiddle and say, Hey, somebody get, get, go get a bottle for this guy, you know, or we're going to lose our fiddler. Yeah. So, and we had some real excellent fiddlers, like probably one of the best fiddlers I ever heard is no longer alive, but uh, and I doubt if he ever was recorded. And his name was uh, Johnny Bolio. Man, could that guy play. I've never heard... It's 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 a crying shame that he never was recorded, because this guy was the master, like the best I've ever heard. The songs were passed on. I guess the older fiddlers that you're talking about, they were coming from different parts of the country, or were they were yeah. they from Res? How did they learn the songs from other fiddlers? Exactly. It seemed like if if you look at the the difference in the way the fiddle is played, just for example, the fiddle. Like it's probably started off in the east, okay? Every, everybody headed west, probably with the fur trade and whatever. And you can really tell the difference between the sound of the fiddle from the east coast to where the Guistians play. I mean, you could just almost tell what district or area they come from. Just by the style of their fiddle playing. Yeah. You can almost tell a Manitoba fiddler from a Gwich'in or Manitoba fiddler and somebody from PEI. I mean, there's such a difference in, in styles. It's almost like the, the language itself. I mean, you can tell just by the way a person speaks basically where he's from. Yeah, their accents, yeah. Their accent, yeah, yeah. like a Newfie and somebody from Old Crow or yeah. a Klavik. You can just about tell where he's from, and that's basically how the fiddle is too. I mean, uh, different dialects or wherever. Yeah. yeah. All the same songs, so like the same traditional songs, like when you talk about it coming from the east. I tend to say that the fiddle actually originated 
overseas. We came with the fur trade on the east coast, and then it just traveled west. I haven't spent a lot of time around the different fiddling styles, styles or yeah. where it's come from, but you got a style, from what I understand, an Irish style, you got like a Scottish mm. style. Yeah. The French. And, the French and, and then there's also the Métis style. Okay, yeah. You know? So the yeah. Métis would just sort of be the combination of, exactly. of, of all yeah. of those? Yeah. It's almost, uh, even the bowing action seems different. The Irish fiddle has got a lot of little trills in it, in, in the, uh, like in the waltzes, really noticeable in the mm -hmm. slower tunes. Eh? And the Scottish are different again. I mean, I, I don't know how to really explain it, but... It seems like the Irish have a, like you can almost tell who the Irish fiddlers, like you watch Riverdance and their style of music. Yeah. If you, you were to take that you know, and somebody like Calvin Walrath or Reg Bouvette, I mean, there's a big, big difference there. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. And the evolution of the songs themselves, they came as traditional Scottish or Irish jigs or reels or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those are still the same songs. The basic song's the same, but like, as it traveled, okay, as one person heard it, and it was interpreted by the next one, I mean, he may have missed a few notes or added a few or whatever, and then he taught somebody else, and that moved further west. Yeah. You know, it, I don't know if, if it become diluted or... or <laughs> developed. Or developed, <laughs> you know? So... Yeah. I don't know if I'm explaining it right. Because nothing was recorded. So you can't take somebody like from the seven, early 1700s, that's right from Europe, come over here. Like his song now has been changed. I mean, everything has changed as it's passed on. And it's probably the, a good thing in a way. Oh, yeah. You can't compare. Like Some people say, oh, the best fiddler I ever heard is from here. They've each got their own own qualities yeah their own style sure way. like you say tradition I mean some people say traditional Métis style traditions can be borrowed too because the sash is not indigenous to North American Indian or native that was adopted from the French culture so it's, it's actually a combination that's and that's, isn't that what Canada is all about? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> the big no, melting no, pot. No, for sure. Yeah. So for I, sure. It's just, yeah. if you're a fiddler and you're in revs, like Angus, you start playing the fiddle and it's not as if you're with one guy and he knows all of the tunes, right? So he knows as many tunes as he knows and so you learn those tunes and then you get tired of playing those tunes or, or you're looking for other songs to play. Like, and that's when you start writing your own music. I mean, some people say, well... It's not traditional. I mean, what is traditional, really? Because it's forever changing. That's right. You know that as a yeah, musician. Yeah, and The music itself is developing that way. The main thing is you enjoy it and you do it. That's, that's yeah. how I look at it. Because my style of guitar playing is be so much different than, say, the next. Yeah, you know? yeah. Even yeah. though we've played together, I mean, you develop your own patterns and your own licks and whatever. So very much, uh, like you say, just sort of passed on from fiddler to fiddler to yeah. fiddler that way. I've always thought that would be a really interesting project, just as far as the fiddle and, and its its travels. Yeah. And all the rest the way of that. The way the fiddle all, flows. All, all the way, all the way up here for <laughs> sure.
So when you're when you're playing with Lee, what kind of places have you played with Lee? When he picked up the fiddle, what year would that have been? Yeah, he started playing in 1990. Okay. We were heading to Fort Simpson to play in uh, a talent show there, and he was going to enter in the open category, which was well, he would play the guitar. He'd been playing for like for like five years, and uh, I says to him, you know, why don't you? play a couple of fiddle tunes while you're down there. I mean, we've got a week. I'm sure you could learn one or two songs. And if only one of the fiddler shows, and if you enter, and, and just by the by the fact that you got up and played a tune, it could be the most god-awful tune. Doesn't matter. The first prize is 500, second prize 400, third prize 300. I mean, even if there's three fiddlers, you come in last place. They have to pay you that three hundred dollars. And by golly, you know, he, he got all all excited. I'm mean, you know, like, are you sure? I says, Lee, just for the fact that you get up on stage, you scratch out the most terrible sound out of that fiddle, they can't deny it. They have to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> so money was the motivator there. <laughs> the incentive, eh? yeah. Yeah, right yeah. So there happened to be a fiddler playing at the Gold Range. So Darlene went up there and um, asked, I can't remember her name, but she came over to give Lee three one-hour lessons. And in those three one-hour lessons, she learned three songs, a waltz, a reel, and a jig. And we went into Simpson, and it sounded god-awful, but, but that got him going on the fiddle, you know? He actually tied for first with Stanley Bolio. <laughs> I mean, there there was no comparison. I mean, Stanley was so so far superior. But I I think it was just the fact that he he, he was a kid and he got a terrific uh, audience response, you know, and and that in, probably influenced the judges quite a bit. But, yeah. But they they gave him first uh, along with with Stanley. Never went back playing guitar after that. Yeah. Yeah. I just jumped right on the fiddle. Yeah. So you guys recorded, you guys recorded CDs and, and you've done traveling. How many CDs? Uh, two. He's done two so far. Okay. And we're probably going to be doing another one this, this summer. Yeah. And your travels have taken you to? As far as Spain. <laughs> All across Canada. And I think we, we've done every province. Except Newfoundland. We've done the uh, Canada Games, Arctic Winter Games. All, all the way down to um, Inuvik, all the communities towards Inuvik, except for Wrigley, I think. He's done uh, shows up in the Eastern Arctic too, like a True North concert. He's been to, I think, three of them now. Do you guys write songs? Does Lee write songs? Uh, Does he write his own songs? He's working he? on it. I think the next album we're going to do a few. So if he if he's looking for other songs that were written by other fiddlers and stuff like that, who are his influences? That well, way, as far as like the, the fiddlers that are still playing today and stuff. Reg Bavette would probably be one of his favorites. That him and Calvin Volrath, Pete Dorian would be another guy. Okay. Lee Cremo. There's so many different fiddlers though, but Bavette would be probably one of his favorites. Why do you think Reg Bavette is his favorite that way? A lot of the songs are very exciting, you know. I guess it's the type of music that he enjoys. Your your musical playing and contributions and stuff like that and into the fiddle, but it sounds like the fiddle is 
pretty important to you like that way. I mean, as you're, you're backing it up, that's where, that's where you, yeah. that's where you feel yeah. most comfortable yeah. is when you're on the guitar. And being yeah, I, I played lead, but I prefer to play rhythm. What I enjoy is basically playing along with the fiddler. I'll never quit. <laughs> I enjoy it so much. I would like to thank George for sharing his rich musical life story with musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Braden. Thanks for listening.